Is he gone? Did he hear any of that? I, was, I, was, uh, I kept talking because he seemed to disappear. I have a dream. This nation will rise up. Live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created. He's emailing a landlord. Uh, please have keys made available for new office mates. Joe Biden, Jill Biden, Jim Biden. They were not office mates. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Rob Long and Peter Robinson. I'm James Lalex. Today we talk to General Attorney William Barr. So let's have ourselves a podcast. I can hear you! Welcome, everybody. It's the Ricochet Podcast, episode number 588. Wow. Soon, soon to be 600. And then... Well, 600 more. And you can help by joining us at ricochet.com. You can be part of the most stimulating conversation and community on the web. I'm James Lilix in alarmingly chilly Minnesota, Minneapolis. Peter Robinson is in photon-drenched California, I'm sure. And Rob uh, is in uh, Gotham. Yes. And uh, gentlemen, how are you today? Well, thank you. I I can't complain, really. I mean, I can, but... Given the state of the planet very well, it got up to 88 degrees here in Palo Alto yesterday. Yes, James, I'm saying that to torture you. That you are. We had sirens, tornado sirens go off yesterday. It was the test. Usually the test is the first Wednesday of the month, and it was. But then on Thursday, they decided to give us two more tests, and people were sort of nervous about this and scrabbling for their phones and punching up Twitter or Reddit or something or next door to see, uh, are we at war? It unnerved people. But that wasn't my reaction. Might have been a month ago or so, slightly. But now, X number of many weeks into the uh, Russian-Ukrainian conflict, I don't think we would be sitting here at this point saying what we're saying about how it's going. Um, News reports today of a missile hitting a train station, 50 people killed. But the big story seems to be the Russian retreat from Kiev. I'm sorry, not retreat, a brilliant strategic repositioning of uh, battle-hardened fresh forces eager for the next front, right? So how does it uh, appear to you guys? More to the point, how does, uh, how does, do you, obviously we're not still at the peak of interest that we were three, four weeks ago, but then the massacre news comes on and it spikes up again. And we have this curious dynamic playing where there's a downplaying of it by some, there's this insistence on what Russia is saying. There's this belief that, uh, it, uh, that Russia still is this military might that eventually will prevail. What are you guys taking away from it now? Rob, do you want to go first on this? No, I was on mute for a reason, Peter. Oh, all right. Well, what is there to say? I mean, on the one hand, I find myself whipsawed about this. It's, as I said, it's 88 degrees. It's sunny spring. And in the, almost the first feeling of summer has come here to Northern California. The Stanford University, where I work, has reopened after the lockdown. Students are biking and skateboarding and life seems wonderful. In all kinds of ways, life seems wonderful. And then I check in on Twitter or I look at the front page of the Wall Street Journal and I see war atrocities. And of course, I remember my my reading on the Second World War, the Battle of Kursk is the moment when the Russians begin to turn the tide of war. The Nazis have advanced deep into Russia on three columns. And in the great tank battle of Kursk, the Russians 
the Soviets, as they were then, begin pushing the Nazis back, and they push them back very fast and out of the country and then into Poland. And everywhere the Russians go, everywhere the Red Army goes, there is pillage and rape and slaughter, and it is horrible. Germans to this day do not like even having the subject raised of what the Russians, what the Red Army, obviously the Second World War itself is a subject, an unhappy subject for them. But to this day, the humiliation that the Red Army visited on Germans, Rob was just in Budapest. You don't want to get Hungarians going on what the Russian soldiers did to civilians during the siege of Bud. All right. So it's happening again. It's happening again. I hope in a smaller way. I hope in a more contained way. I hope that the Russian commanders get better control of the troops on the ground. And maybe these hopes are all fantasies. Uh, it's the whole thing is horrible. Do I, Henry Kissinger-esque, see some settlement, some way out? Do I see? No, I do not. Vladimir Putin can't he can't withdraw. He can't do anything that appears to be a retreat because he is in he is in power through the sheer exercise of power. And the moment he looks weak, those oligarchs will turn into jackals. I, that's my reading of the way the dynamics of tyrannies go. There's always someone ready to topple the tyrant once he ceases to seem invincible. And the Ukrainians, it's now very clear that Ukraine does exist in people's minds and hearts as a nation unto itself. And they've had this done to them. They don't want to settle. I don't see any way out. So Rob will now find a way out. <laughs> no, I don't think there's a way out. <clears throat> Two things. One, I would think, I think what's interesting is that, you know, the old saw what history repeats itself. First time is tragedy. Second time is farce. Farce. My little... Marks, I think, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. My rewriting of that is the history third, does repeat itself, but... Third time, repeats, is a, the third time is a Netflix miniseries. <laughs> Yeah. So, so what I was, uh, um, my, my rewrite on that is that history repeats itself, but when it repeats itself, you're the other guy. So mm. Russia has for mm. years, like kind of like enjoyed, not enjoyed, but celebrated the absolute impenetrable defense of Russia and Russian weather to the Napoleonic invader and the, and the Nazi invader. Um, and they found themselves. They think always think themselves very pretty clever. They were pretty clever. Well, now they are that. They are doing that. Yes, they are. Long slog, bad, bad with logistics, bad with resupplying, uh, terrible command structure. Now they're moving away from from scalded. They're moving away from the north, moving away from Kiev, and moving to the east. So there's something about that that's interesting. And then I guess the second thing is, like, I mean, good news and bad news, right? The bad news is that war is still war, and um, it's mostly looting and pillaging. We've, we've kind of, I don't know whether we, how long we've done this, but pretty much since the beginning of war, we've had sort of war theorists and war, no, war nobility. That's been kind of the lie we've told ourselves. Well, these generals, they're sort of sitting there like a game of Stratego. Um, they're gentlemen, after all, you know, like the the right, the, the, the right. D, Washington D.C. gentry packed picnic lunches with champagne on ice and oysters, and went out to Manassas to watch first Manassas from a distance, and they just thought it would be kind of like a, a um, I don't know, a spectacle, but interesting one. And instead, what they looked at was like human slaughter, a charnel house, and it mm -hmm. kind of changed the attitude, but a little too late. 
And I, you know, so, so the good, the bad news is the war is still war. There's still going to be incredible massacres and incredible, I mean, and, and we're going to end up in this argument about what a war crime is as if that's like, there's a line mm-hmm. across really hard, very fuzzy. Not that there isn't one, but we can complicate it. But the good news is, is that um, everyone seems to be shocked. And the, the, the world, or at least the West seems to be shocked by this. Mm-hmm. Even Russians are shocked by body bags. And on a scale of, you know, one to, you know, to beginning of history, or even the 20th century and this, this is a, it's a terrible thing, but it's remarkably contained so far. I'm, this is all stipulating as of Friday morning. Um, and there is something to be said for that, to be said for the idea that um, it doesn't look like World War One's happening. Uh, where all the powers of great powers of Europe get together and then suddenly find themselves in the middle of a, of a disaster. It looks to me like it's not escalating. I mean, I, I shouldn't say escalating. It's going to escalate inside Ukraine, but it's not. Spreading. It's not spilling over because nobody wants yeah. to get nuked. Well, I, I, right. I mean, there's, there's no engagement with Russia. There's no NATO is not pouring in over the border to assist because they don't want to be obliterated by Russians' nuclear arsenal, which they assume still, you know, even if twenty percent of it is still working, that's 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 a lot of smoke. Right, but it's still a pretty hot war, right? So it's it's lots going on. We're we're going to resupply them. So mm-hmm. the, if if the Ukrainians decide to press their gain, their short gains in the in the um in the on their coast, their eastern coast. Um, that's going to be material they get from us. So yeah. we, we are going to we are going to escalate our arms to them. But I, I think that the idea that there's a nuclear peril is. Do you? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I'm 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 not going to disagree with you in any immediate way. But here's I have two thoughts, two worries, two concerns. One, I, I mentioned this before last week that a friend here at the Hoover Institution, who's a Russian and who did time in the Lubyanka in the old days, thinks there's some Hmm. chance that over the next couple of years, Russia will just break up. Mm -hmm. And so that's concern number one. I'm coming to the, and the second concern is, but wait, why is that? Why is that a concern? Well, for when you add the second one, I'll get to it. Just uh, the second one is look at the command structure, such as it is that we've seen on display in Ukraine breaks down. They don't know what they're doing incompetence, bad equipment. All right, put those two together. And there are almost 6,000 nuclear weapons in Russia. Who is in charge of them? Do we know where every single one of those weapons is located? Is the, are the people in charge of it as in charge of each weapon as, or do we have a couple of drunk soldiers that's stuck at each missile silo that, and if Russia breaks up, what's the custody? What's the chain that, that, um, if you're looking for things to keep you awake at night, I offer those. Yeah, that is for sure. Um, I guess I, should, I guess my response to that is that's all, always possible. But then we'll be back where we were in 1993, 1994, 1992, really. Um, and we'll be making a, a 30-year bet. Yes. Well, here's the thing, though, guys. I mean, they have to be maintained, and it takes expertise to do so. And if you have the whole money. thing break, break up into a constituent element countries, uh, they probably aren't going to have the resources or the ability or the manpower or the brain power in order to keep them going. 
you you know you you have to keep them maintained you know it's not like a car that you take out and you drive it around and you get the feel of it and then you have it you you have it serviced and the rest of it i mean the car that i'm driving right now for example every time that i take it out i know it better than i did when i got it i know what it can do it's it's like my car even though it's depreciating gets gets better over time it really does a lot of things get better over time with use uh, would you ever think that your sheets, for example, would be something like that? Probably not. But bowl and branch sheets, they get better over time. They're not just buttery, soft, breathable, and absorbably comfortable. No, they get softer with every wash. Forget that thread count nonsense. No, bowl and branch gives you thread quality because it doesn't matter how many threads your sheets have if they aren't the best threads possible, right? And that's why I'm here to tell you as somebody who has been sleeping for years, years on the same sheets. It's not like I change them. Well, I wash them, but it's not like I change them every year or two. I don't need to because they're as good as they were when I got them and then they get better over time. You can find this out too. Now, the good thing is, is that Bold and Branch signature sheets come in nine versatile colors in all sizes, matches your bed, matches your room from twin up to California King. You'll immediately feel the difference from their iconic signature sheets. They're hundred percent free from toxins, meaning no pesticides, no formaldehyde or other harsh chemicals are used in their manufacturer. And Bold and Branch sheets fit the deepest of mattresses and are labeled with top and bottom tags Yes, they're labeled, so you don't have to do that thing where you shift the rectangle around. Oh, so making your bed is going to be easier than ever. Best of all, Bowl and Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on all of your orders. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use the promo code RICOCHET at BowlandBranch.com. That's Bowl and Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, Branch.com. Promo code RICOCHET. And we thank Bowl and Branch for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. And now we welcome to the podcast, William Barr. He served as the 77th and 85th United States Attorney General, led the DOJ through the L.A. riots, Pan Am 103, Iran-Contra during his first stint, and he had the reins through Russiagate, COVID outbreaks, civil unrest, impeachments in the 2020 election fallout, hence perhaps the title of his memoir, One Damn Thing After Another. <laughs> gives readers a front and center perspective on his experience. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So, the, you know, that list of damn things there for the, from the first stint is enough to make anybody say, I'm just going to go to some nice little corporate board or academia. Why did you come back and how would you compare the two stints that you had as AG? Uh, well, that's that, that's a great question. Uh, I had no intention of going back into government and certainly not in the job of attorney general, which is like walking across a minefield and having gotten through once, I wasn't anxious to do it again, especially in the, the divisive world we had moved into uh, over the preceding 28 years before uh, when I was last attorney general. Uh, but it was clear that Trump was running into serious difficulty. Uh, it looked to me like we were potentially careening to a constitutional crisis. Uh, I was very suspicious of the Russiagate uh, allegations, uh, and I was concerned about the way they were being used to hobble his administration and and uh, potentially drive him from office. And uh, I thought he needed a strong attorney general uh, at the time, and I tr- tried to, uh, I knew that uh, Sessions would be leaving and I was asked for recommendations and as to his replacement and I threw out a lot of names and tried to push other people. But I was on a number of corporate boards. Uh, I was of counsel to a firm and could work to the extent I wanted. Uh, I didn't want to go in. But at the end of the day, 
no one else was gaining traction. The president seemed very interested in me, and I decided that I would talk to He wanted to talk to me. And I said I would only talk to him if I was willing to take the job if asked, and I finally decided I would. And it was, it was basically because I felt someone had to do this job. Uh, I felt I could do it. Uh, no one else uh, seemed to be uh, qualifying or in the running. And so I decided I would do it. It sort of came down to something Bob Gates said to me uh, during H.W.'s funeral, which happened a couple of days after the president had already offered me the job, although it was still secret. And uh, he said, I see you're, I see you're in the running uh, for this job. Is that something you would actually do? And I said, what do you think, Bob? Do you think I should do it if, if asked? And he said, yeah. He said, uh, the, right now, the, we, we have a lot of challenges facing us. And the, what's best for the country is people to have these jobs that know what the hell they're doing. So I'd be in favor of it. And Before we go to Peter, one, one question it. about Russia. What made you suspicious of it? Well, uh, I thought the whole idea that the Russians would collude. I didn't see any need. Based on, based on my experience with intelligence, I thought the idea that the Russians would need anyone to collude or want anyone to partner with them on this kind of election activity was far-fetched. The Russians know how to do um, uh, hack and dump exercises, you know, stealing things from computers and then publishing them. That's their stock and trade. They don't need any help to do that. And enlisting support from American politicians to participate in some way would have greatly increased the risk to Russia with no apparent benefit. So I thought the whole idea of, of collusion uh, just didn't make any sense to me. And the more I saw, the more I found out about it, the more I saw that it was completely empty. It was it, These were baseless allegations. And the, the thing they used as predicate uh, to initiate the investigation was clearly insufficient and based largely on, on their own misunderstanding of the facts. So, uh, General Barr, Peter Robinson here. I haven't read your book yet, and here's why. The moment it arrived, my wife nabbed it. So I'm going to have to ask you questions based on her looking up from the book saying, oh, this is interesting. This is interesting. Well, you know, Peter, you can always buy another copy. I, mean, I could do the that. Author, I every house do, should have two copies. I could do that, but you just heard him talk about all the corporate boards. <laughs> he, doesn't need the, he doesn't need the extra <laughs> retail sale. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> you served you served in a Washington that I knew for you were served as attorney general under George H.W. Bush. So you were there at the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s after we'd been through the horrible stagflation, the economic downturn of the 70s, after we'd watched the Soviets expand their presence throughout the 70s. And then this tremendous turn and revival in the 80s. So here's a sort of a big think question. Are we capable of another such revival now? So that is a great question. And uh, it's, it's something I talk about all the time with my friends, including those who still think that Trump is the answer to all our problems. And that is, as bad as things look today, 
it reminds me exactly as you said of the 60s and 70s the democratic party took a, a sharp turn to the left vietnam was a big part of that yes. they divided as a party and they tried to patch over the divide by picking an empty vessel like jimmy carter that everyone could sort of read what they wanted to read into him and it was a completely ineffective feckless administration so what happened? I mean, I see that as a parallel to what we've seen today, a sharp lurch by the Democratic Party, even more so than in the 60s and 70s and more pervasive. But sharp uh, shift to the left. They try to patch it over with Biden. Biden is going to be a one term president. The answer to so many problems, or at least the first step in restoring America, is a decisive transforming election victory, not one-term victory, yes. but someone like Ronald Reagan, who came in and won 44 states, then he won 49 yes. states, then he delivered his vice president with 40 states. That's 12 years of direct rule. And that forced the Democrats to move to a centrist, which Clinton was, and then even required that centrist to move further to the right with reforming welfare and two tough crime yes. bills at a minimum. That was an era. That was an era. By the time that Reagan and Bush were done, liberal was a dirty word for dec for a couple of decades. That's and then we started hearing more about progressives. Um, yes. So. That I, I tell all my friends, look, the reason I'm opposed to Trump, I'm not I don't have, I'm not hostile to Trump, um, but he is not the man to deliver that kind of victory for for us. And putting him up would fritter away what I think is a, a tremendous opportunity. Gigantic. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. um I think it's as bad as things look. The first step is to win that kind of victory we'll, with someone who will come in with an agenda to get back to some basics and some idea about how to put in changes that will be lasting uh, or at least more lasting than, than any of Trump's have been uh, and, and deal with some of the basic uh, factors that are uh, corroding uh, the American Republic. And that sort of sums up where I think we are. May I? So uh, Rob wants to come in, of course. So rather, you and I are going to be able to sit down together when you visit yes. Northern California. So I'm going to have you to myself for a good long time. So I'll just, I'll do another compression of questions here. Four points about Donald Trump that I think makes sense. I'll just tick them off and you tell me whether I'm right or I'm wrong. One, no despite his mouth, despite his temper tantrums, he was harder done by than he ever did. That man was treated outrageously, outrageously unfairly in a way that implicated even our intelligence agencies, or at least senior members of the intelligence agencies. Item one. Item two. Again, if you disregard his mouth and his thumbs, his Twitter feed, the first three years were pretty successful. He, he unified the country in opposition to China. He enacted an economic package that permitted an expansion to take place that enabled working Americans to increase their real wages for the first time in a couple of decades. Three, he screwed up COVID. He didn't know what he was doing, and he let the bureaucrats... Fauci and Burks and Redfield closed down the whole country. And four, 
the election drove him out of his mind. There's a different Donald Trump after the election takes place. That's what seems to me to be true about Donald Trump. Over to you. I would I would add a fifth. But number one, I agree. He was more sinned against than sinning. Um, the second one was, yes, he had, a ver- I think, a very successful administration. Putting COVID aside for a minute, I think his policy, and, and I would say all the way to the election, it was a strong administration. Uh, again, putting COVID aside. Uh, and he had good policy sense on most things. I called them his red meat issues, issues like crime or immigration. Uh, or other national security issues. He generally had good instincts. He was a patriot. Yes. He, I think he does love the country. And he wanted to do right by the country. He also want, you know, he is extremely egotistical, but put that aside. Uh, then what was the, th- the third one was COVID. COVID yeah. was one of the examples of where his weaknesses come, f- come through, which is that... Uh, if he doesn't have a good, strong instinct about something or something's very complicated, he doesn't have the patience uh, to to figure it out and, out and and take a decisive stand. And he has a tendency to pull back and allow events to occur and then snipe at people, snipe and criticize versus actually go out and make a decision. I went in at one point, and I wasn't the only one who was concerned about the visibility he was getting Fauci. I said, you know, you're basically empowering this guy and making him the czar. The White House is yes. creating Fauci. This is an 80-year-old bureaucrat who's been in the same job for 35 years. And there are, you know, the public health sector is pretty screwed up anyway, but there are at least some good ones out there in the private sector. Go out and bring in some real top people and have some other advice here and don't make this guy the face of it. He did. Now, I contra- and I fault him with it uh, because it, there, there was a lack of leadership. Now, any president would have had to deal with federalism and it would have been a messy process anyway. But I contrast that with example for DeSantis. I don't know DeSantis, and I and, and you know I'm not carrying DeSantis's banner here, but I look at what he did. He made that is the governor made some really tough decisions and was beaten up for them. And there were even at times saying, "Ooh, did he get out on a limb here?" He stuck with it. He didn't point the finger and blame people, and he seems to have done a really good job. So there was a, re- a leadership gap on on COVID, but I don't think Trump lost because of COVID. I mean, in a way. You don't. Well, I think I think it obviously if there was no covid, he would have won. He would have won into right. office. Uh, but he it didn't defeat him in the sense that he could have won fairly handily. I think what lost the election and everyone was telling him this for for the last year is that there was a significant segment of the suburban voters who were Republican voters or Republican-leaning independent voters who just could not stand him and uh, would vote. And, and probably 8 to 10 percent in, 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 uh, of, the, of, the, of, the, of those voters, and it, I could see it in my own state of Virginia. I mean, we, the Republican Party has just been, was decimated by the defection of these voters. That's why he lost the election. And you can, and if you study the votes, you can see that that's, that's the gap. And then the fourth point was he went completely off the tracks after the election. There was a different Donald Trump somehow. Yeah. He'd done, it, it, it affected him somehow. Well, see, I always felt he, he is almost 
you, you know, there's a lot of id there, and he will he will just go after what he wants. And most people will be restrained by logic, reason, uh, or moral compass. They they have less claim on him than with many. But self-interest is usually what gets his attention. And if you explain to him, look, this isn't really, you know, this is going to come back and bite you, you know, he would listen. And so it was a blood sport frequently keeping him on track, not because he wanted to do anything, by the way, illegal or autocratic. It was just that he was sometimes he was excessive. He wanted to go too far. And, uh, you know, like calling the 82nd Airborne into Portland to restore order. I, I can get into that and why that would have been a bad idea. But, you know, those are the kinds of things. But after the election, he didn't give a damn. There was there was no way you could deflect him from what his, you know, his his. Uh, basic desire was, and he also surrounded himself, and this is another weakness he has, surrounded himself with a lot of yes men and uh, people who would tell him what he wanted to hear, but they had no responsibility. They were outsiders and they were crackpots. And um, so I agree with, with, with all of what you said. The only difference I would say is he did lose the election because he thought, and this is why he's not the man to come in with the kind of victory we need in the future. He's a one-trick pony, which is to, to whip up his base and, and pander right. to his base. And he does it in a way that alienates an important faction of the vote. So you look at what happened in Virginia and, and New Jersey. Those were candidates who brought, in, who brought those, both those groups back together again. Yes. And it was decisive in, in, in Virginia, and it could have been uh, in New Jersey. He panders to his base to the exclusion of of this other group that i i said that was my last question and i'm sorry i'm going to ask one more has there been a shift in underlying thinking among political professionals in washington i've been in california a long time now but in the 80s throughout the post-war period and certainly into the 80s certainly through the the presidency of george hw bush and bill clinton the name of the game was the traditional game of politics, which is you secure your base and then you reach for the center. Mm-hmm. You secure your base and then you enlarge your vote. Mm-hmm. And it feels to me as though the quant jocks who now dominate certain aspects of political strategy have decided, no, actually, in a closely divided nation, what you want to do is drive up your own vote. You not only secure your base, but you do all you can to to increase the intensity of their feeling and make sure that your people get to the voting booth. And that is a very different thing from securing your people and then trying to bring, to persuade, to invite others in. As opposed, Ronald Reagan is always during campaign season. He's now, and now let me say a word to my fellow Democrat. Or I used <laughs> to be a Democrat. Always reaching out. Right. And with Trump. No. And also, I have to say, even though they're looking at a bloodbath in the midterms, the Democratic strategy in Biden is now on this transgender. It's unbelievable. There's not a single even baby step toward the middle. They seem intent on fomenting their own base. And is there some kind of underlying shift in the basic mechanics or strategy of presidential politics that animates all of this. Yeah, I, I think there is, you know, whether it's whether it's the cause of some of the uh, 
uh, tribalism and and polarization are are, are one of the consequences. It's become worse because of the because of that. It's it's hard to say, but I I agree with you. Um, And Trump's people said, if you can get sixty five million out of your base, uh, you know you're going to you're going to win. 65 million. And his complaint is, I got 75 million and I lost. How did that happen? Because uh, they weren't, they didn't have a dynamic model that showed uh, how much people hated him on the other side and how much of the vote was going to come out. But um, yeah, you're right. He, he did nothing to conciliate the voters who had been turned off by his behavior. And every time he took, you know, he was out of, you know, if he'd quiet down for two weeks, and had, wouldn't hold press conference. His popularity would start going up again. Everyone pointed this out to him, um, and uh, you know, I, I, I think it's it's a number. There's another thing going on, which is, um, you know, the the politicians in Washington are becoming more career politicians. And they're afraid of, they want to hold on to their jobs, because for many of them, it's the best job they will ever have. And they're worried about a challenge from their uh, extreme. So, you know, the Republicans from the right, Democrats from the left. And so the way you get ahead is pandering to your base in the Republican Party. And, um, you know, you just don't pay attention to the to the other people. But it's a game that has its limits, as, as Trump has just proven and the democrats are going to you know have the same result but going back to the reagan model i think there are three just as then there are three groups that we we can approach we can approach the the working class and the middle class that trump resonated with we can get retain and win back uh the republicans uh and college educated uh republican leaning people in the suburbs and just as with reagan we can get people who are more of the classical liberal type who are nauseated by the excesses of the left. And there are a growing number of those people. And just as those people came over to, to Reagan, I mean, it's a great opportunity. But we need we need a leader who is uh, understands these things, is articulate. The other diff- big difference is Trump was a leader with his base. He was yes. not a panderer. He, right. he didn't he whip up their frustrations and resentments. He explained to them why they were frustrated. But then he told them, you know, how he how, how you know, what the solution was. And, uh, you know, Trump is, is a very it's a much smaller man than Ronald Reagan. He's no he's no Ronald Reagan by far. And one of it, he, he 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 just panders to his base and he doesn't even pander to his real base. This is the other disagreement I had with him. I know it sounds impertinent. But I think he had the New York businessman's view of his base. Uh, he th- I think in his heart of hearts, he considered them Yahoo, and he didn't really know how they thought. That's why he was so reluctant to attack the Ku Klux Klan and other extremists, because in his own mind, he said, well, maybe these are my followers. Um, I don't know conservative Republicans who wouldn't, you know, immediately disavow Ku Klux Klan. And, um, and therefore, he, go- he went overboard. He went overboard in pandering. And that, and that's where part of the uh, the backlash in the suburbs came from. Got it. The memoir is one damn thing after another, and here's another damn host, Rob Long. <laughs> hey, so um, 
Thank you for joining us. I should tell you that uh, that's the book, One Damn Thing After Another. And just so you know, uh, one of the benefits of being a member of Ricochet, we have some Ricochet listeners listening in, is that uh, they get to hear this and you've already sold a copy. So great. You know, you're you're on your way. <laughs> um, now, wait. So I, I have a bunch of questions. I got a, one dumb question. Um, do people call you General Bar? Like, is it was that weird at first? Well, it, wasn't, it was Bar? weird when I was 40. One right uh, that started people calling me right. general, but you know that that is a complete mistake. Is oh, it? Yeah. Is That's my next question. Yeah. So in in, in it's it's American ignorance, uh, but I <laughs> but I always like bet it. on that. I like it, so I'm not going to change. It. But um, in the English system, the word general was taken from the Norman French and just simply meant general. So it was the general right. attorney was referred to as the attorney general. Attorney oh, is see. the noun. General is the adjective. Right. General is the adjective. Right. Uh, I and get it came you. from the French. And so uh, every English-speaking country, with the exception of the United States, refers to the attorney general as attorney. Okay. Right. The United yes, States yes, right. is the only English-speaking country that refers <laughs> to the attorney general as general. I, now I know this is an aside, but I remember when it was the Surgeon General C. Everett Coop, and he showed up one day in a kind of a a uniform. I think he had sort of designed himself because I'm General Coop. I got to have a general's uniform. Well, no, it's the public health like service. That. It's the public health service. Uh, okay, he's the general of the book. Um, well, uh, here's what I do know how to say: is that you were one of Trump's attorneys general. Mm-hmm. And when your predecessor was there, we had this bruising fight. Uh, for the Supreme Court, Brett Kavanaugh, Supreme Court Mm -hmm. Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And then when you were there, we had a not a bruising fight. We had a kind of, well, you know, if you're on the right and and there's a Republican president nominates a Supreme Court, uh, a a nominee for Supreme Court, it's a nail biter when you're watching the hearings because you don't Mm -hmm. know. But it went pretty well. Amy Coney Barrett, Mm -hmm. she's also now in the Supreme Court. That was, I, I think that was, uh, considering it was, I compared it to Brett Kavanaugh, that seemed like a fairly civil process. She didn't convince anybody who wasn't, who wasn't already liberal to vote for right. her. It pretty much, she got passed along party lines. Um, Judge Brown, who is now, uh, yesterday, I guess, was that yesterday? Justice was, was, elect. Uh, confirmed. Justice elect. Um, how would you compare her process to Amy Coney Barrett's process, which you oversaw, to Brett Kavanaugh's process, which we all kind of put together, probably watched on TV. Yeah. Well, in some ways, I'm I'm indebted to Kavanaugh because it was the treatment of Kavanaugh that persuaded my wife to tell me, okay, someone has to stop these people, the, you know, the <laughs> yeah. left. And if, if you want to go in, you can go in. Um, Kavanaugh is the general playbook of the Democratic Party, which is personal destruction. Uh, And, uh, you know, I I think they tried that with Clarence Thomas. Mm -hmm. This was this was sort of the same kind of play. It was very vicious. Um, I just think they had a harder time pulling it off with someone uh, who's a woman and also whose deportment was such that it was hard to demonize her. Uh, and so I think had, had they had the ability to destroy her uh, you know, uh, reputation and go after something, they, they would have, but they just didn't, you know, they couldn't get traction on anything. Uh, 
so which is one of the reasons she was selected because she seemed like she was going to be the easiest to confirm had you been there um in the, the the first part of the administration would you would she have been the top of your list would, would you have the same list i guess i should have yeah I, I mean i think i would have had generally the same list i you know i i had views on each of the the panel i mean in each case there were three three potential picks and and i was happy with all of them frankly i didn't think there was a, a lemon in the group uh, which was you know not true under george hw bush where right uh you know we got suitor yeah uh so moving would you would you have voted to confirm judge brown no why because you know, because I think she suffers from the same thing as the as the uh, progressive left does generally, which is she uh, they are about politics, not the rule of law, and the, the the rule of law is being broken down by politics, political consideration. So when you're, I mean, I'm just trying to figure this out because I know there's some there's some school thoughts as look, I evaluate that was she fit, she not fit. And if she's fit, um, then I'm going to vote mm-hmm. for her. Uh, and if she's not fit, uh, then I won't. Um, and if she's a little bit liberal, I'll, I'll take it. If she's a lot liberal, I won't. On a scale of like one to liberal, the best you're going to get from a split Senate and a liberal president, is this a... Is this a so I, I kind of take your lumps and move, or is it, is it, is it a stand and fight? This one was not. I mean, this one was not a stand and fight because it didn't. Well, first, I would add another category. I would say, generally speaking, I am of the, I am of the view that the president is entitled to his pick. Of right, uh, and, and, or it comes in with a strong presumption. But we're in a world where I think the left is moving further and further away, and 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 whose views are essentially subversive of the rule of law. Uh, you know, I think it. I, th- I think you know. You can have a debate over whether the Constitution means A or B, uh, and it could be a leg- and, and and it could be a legitimate dispute. And I may have a view, and, and the uh, nominee may have a different view, but it's in- it has intellectual uh, honesty right. to it. And I think we're in a world where uh, it's more uh, strong arming. Uh, the results that they want and overriding the law. I actually think, uh, now, I think uh, Breyer was a very intelligent man, very well versed in antitrust, business, regulation. He was actually, I think, in many areas, a very uh, good justice. And I think he eventually went along with with the liberal bloc, but he could also persuade some of the conservatives. Having him leave and having uh, Judge Brown in, I think, will will actually weaken the weaken the liberal bloc because they they I don't think will have the capacity to bridge differences or persuade. That's yeah. I hadn't thought of that. So, um, how much of that goes on? Well, I mean, look at the Obamacare thing. That was of critical significance. I mean, the the story there appears to be that that, uh, uh, and certainly when you read the opinions and see how they were constructed, it looks this way. It looks like Roberts was going to go along with the conservatives on that, and at the very last minute, Breyer 
gave him the tax argument as a way of the Supreme Court, you know, not being in the middle of taking down the statute. And he appears to have been persuaded by Breyer. Um, So that's an example in a very high profile case. It does go on. I think Justice Kagan, I think, has the capacity to do that, too. I think she she's a very, you know, she. She is a little bit more, in my view, Justice Kagan is a little bit more of the, uh, has more intellectual honesty, perhaps. I don't mean honest, I don't mean that as an insult. I'm just saying that there's more coherence to her, philosophical coherence to her positions. Now, are you hopeful going forward um, for the Supreme Court? I mean, the way it looks like it's going to be now when, when, um, when Breyer is replaced by Judge Brown, um, do you do, are you hopeful that that court will at least be the court of last resort for conservatives who want limited government and constitutional rule? Yeah, I'm very uh, cautiously. No, I'm, I'm optimistic. No, I'm optimistic <laughs> about the court. I mean, it may not be a hundred percent, but uh, uh, but I think it's going to be a pretty good batting, a pretty good batting average for for those key issues. Uh, and I know I know James must jump in. So I just have one uh, one more uh, thought just about the Department of Justice, because it does seem like for the, as long as I can remember, I'm an old person now. Uh, <laughs> the DOJ was sort of this sort of sacred building. It wasn't really like Treasury or agriculture. You know, you're going to get rank the department, the cabinet departments. And, the, you know, a lot of them are kind of like, I get it. This is kind of a office of grift here, ag or interior, all that stuff. Um DOJ just seemed like it was the temple and untouchable. The FBI seemed like these are clean cut, you know, they look like the Mormons who knock on your door. You know, like these seem like just clean cut straight arrows. Past four, five, six years, that is the department. And I think the FBI especially have really taken a reputational beating. Is that fair? Is it not fair? How do you get it back? I mean, or, or is it just is it just the price we pay for a wide open society? No, I think it's I think it's it's partly fair. Uh, and uh, let me just okay, I think I think it's I think it's partly fair. I think a lot of it is generational, actually, and the kinds of people coming into the department and to the uh, FBI are, are different than the, you know we were and are. Um, you know, people in our generation were. Uh, and there's a higher incidence of people who are willing to be political, who see their job. It's like sort of journalists these days, a lot of young journalists. You know, the professional uh, purpose of journalism isn't as important to them as being agents of change. And uh, so truth is not as important as a narrative. Uh, and we see that in, in many different professions even medicine now you know every politics is, is creeping into everything and the same is true of the justice department and the fbi and part of it is you know, the, this generation ha- has that outlook uh i think that uh, when i came in last time the first time it was after eight years of ronald reagan and there were self-selection process people who wanted to be in the department to effectuate uh, right. liberal change had left, basically, gotten frustrated. This time in, it was after eight years of Obama, and it was a much different department. Um, I tell people that uh, 
any ca cases that were embarrassing to the Democrats. I mean, the news reports say, I'm not going to say, but the news reports say that there was a Hunter Biden investigation pending. That was, If that's true, then it was never leaked. And I can say that no uh, case embarrassing to the Democrats was leaked while I was there. But every case embarrassing to the Republicans was leaked. So there are political operators uh, there are lawyers in the department who I believe uh, apply two different standards, consciously or unconsciously. That said, I would say that there are still a lot of lawyers in the department who are solid pros. And I've worked with right. I've worked with you know Democratic lawyers. I know they're Democrat. They know I'm a Republican, but. You know, I'd go into any battle with them because they were intellectually honest. They applied one standard, and it was a pleasure to work with people like that. But there are fewer of them. Now, it goes back to what I said at the beginning. People said, well, you, you know, you were there. You could have, you know. Uh, you right. Know, changing an institution like that or, or uh, taking care of some of these systemic problems is something that is going to require a long time and certainly longer than one term of a presidency who has so much going on and has you know, impeachment and other things like that. And uh, I think part of restoring America is to depoliticize, you know, some of these, you know, get back to basics, uh, make sure these departments are doing their job. Same thing in the Defense Department. The idea of these defense guys sitting around worrying about some of the woke issues they are is very disturbing to me. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. James Lilacs here in Minneapolis. Uh, your book, One Damn Thing After Another, uh, you have two stints as attorney general and specific, uh, both of which had riots, the L.A. riots and then the 2020 riots, which Minneapolis was hit inordinately in mm -hmm. hard. The 2020 was different in that there was an organization that did a lot of the groundwork. And in a statement in uh, 2020, May 30th, 2020, you, you castigated Antifa and said, and I'm quoting here from the statement, the violence instigated and carried out by Antifa and other similar groups in connection with the rioting is domestic terrorism and will be treating, treated accordingly. So what happened? What, what did the DOJ do to this particular element in American dysfunctional politics? Right. So, I, you know... Uh... After the initial uh, tough times from like May 28th, 9th, 30th, or up in, running up to June 1st, June 1st was a bad day around the country. Uh, I forgot exactly when I said that, but it was sometime approaching. 31st. The 31st? It was the yeah, 30, yeah. 31st. So um, in Washington, uh, where where obviously I was physically present and the Lafayette Park thing took place, uh, there were a lot of arrests and there, and, uh, there were prosecutions of people. Um, the problem, we I think we ended up, after the first few weeks, arresting 300 nationwide. That's because most of the crimes were local in nature. And what I said is, we're going to go after the ringleaders, the agent provocateurs, the people who have traveled interstate for purposes of provoking this violence. And we did arrest a lot of them. And a lot of those cases were later dismissed, especially in places like Portland and in Washington State by the next administration. 
Um, and we prosecute, but we did prosecute cases like arson cases and things like that. It's just that the news doesn't really catch up with that. Uh, it's not as interesting a year later when someone is convicted of arson in Minneapolis or something like that. Uh, but uh, the other problem we had was, and in and, and, and some places like Portland, it was almost impossible to prosecute people. Yeah. The judges were not supportive of us. The juries are not supportive of us. But the other problem was actually apprehending them and, and, and getting the evidence. And people said, well, how is it that, you know, so many hundred people were arrested on January 6th and, and, and it doesn't look like people are being pursued so much on the other stuff. And, what, uh, you know, I'm not saying they're there. I, I do think that, you know, the department has approached this not even handedly. In other words, they're not treating the people the same. But, uh the, when when the Antifa violates the law, they all dress in black, they have masks, it's at night, they have drills of how to operate to make it hard to identify who the people are who are actually throwing the bricks or the Molotov cocktails. They have people in front holding their hands up to obscure... Vi- umbrellas. What? Umbrellas. Yeah, umbrellas, things like that. They have this these ways of, uh, and in the middle of the night, you know, a brick comes out, and it's it's hard to figure out where it's coming from. And we tried to develop counter tactics to do the, to, to to try to uh, identify the ringleaders and and move in on them quickly, so we could prove that they were the people. And that was difficult, especially in 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 Portland. And uh, so, whereas. And they know how to work the seam between the First Amendment and uh, illegal rioting. They're right there on the seam, and they they know how to, to uh, work the First Amendment protections in a way that makes it hard for law enforcement. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's the problem of dealing uh, with it. The other thing is that the FBI and uh, doesn't have as much information about these groups. And the reason they don't is because historically they've always gotten keel-hauled every time they've spied on liberal groups, whether it be anti-war groups or what have you. And so there's this institutional concern uh, when you're spying on a left-wing group, it's, you know, it's a uh, you know, civil rights issue, whereas if you're spying on a right-wing group, then no question, you know, it has nothing to do with civil rights. You're dealing with extremists. So uh, as a result, all this intelligence comes in on the right-wing groups. Very little intelligence comes in on the left-wing groups, and it becomes almost a, a, uh, you know, a, self-reinforcing. Yeah, self-reinforcing. Well, we have time for one more, and Peter is happy and eager to ask it. Last question. By the way, I'm really looking forward to the hour we'll have together in May, yeah. because so am I. you are being just amazingly candid. This is terrific. Um, so here's my last question. June, just two months away, and the big decisions will be coming down. If this, if this, if this court, if this court overturns Roe, what's, will the country tear itself apart? I mean, the, what will happen? I think the Democrats will try to tear the country apart. It'll become the substitute for life, Black Lives Matter. Uh, and uh, they will they will try to use it as best they can because it's an election year. 
Uh, right. So, you know, I think it'll be a big deal because they will make it a big deal. It shouldn't be a big deal because what it does is it allows the state, I think it'll allow the states to address it. At least in this case, it, you know, it will still permit abortion. Uh, it just, it places some time limit on it. Um, I also, I don't think, my guess is, my prediction is they will not overrule Roe directly. They Oh really? No, I think uh, I think I think the controlling opinion. Some may say, you know, we're ready to do that, but I think they'll say we don't have to address that issue because this one doesn't put an undue burden on the right to abortion. And I think it'll be more of a significant step in the direction that people who are, you know, would like to see limitations will be happy about, but it won't go the whole hog and, and overrule Roe. That's my prediction. And will will people on our side of the legal issues be saying to each other all over again, as they did after the Obamacare decision, oh, doggone John Roberts, the chief is being overcautious all over again. I don't think so. Uh, I actually think, you know, the our, our groups, if you want to call them our groups, uh, those groups are pretty sophisticated. And uh, look, they, they accepted uh, Trump on many things <laughs> because they were they they understood the practical uh, realities of politics. And uh, and also, you know, as a matter of law, if you don't have to overrule something, uh, directly, you don't necessarily do it. So, but I think, I think clearly that will indicate the direction things are going. One damn thing after another. Memoir by William Barr. Check it out. Read it. Enjoy it. And of course, wait for Peter to have the interview as well, which we look forward to. Thanks for joining us today in the podcast. Thank you, guys. It's been, it's fun. been fun. Thank, thank you, General. You. Yep. Bye. Bye. General. General. Yeah. Thank you, Attorney <laughs> thank you. General. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, he was talking there about, uh, you know, the need for just not one presidential term, but two and three and the realignment that comes with it. When you do that and you have a population that's paying attention, you can't get away with some things. Now, uh, you know, in the in the flowering of the Biden glory and all of the enthusiasm and power that he had, we had that infrastructure bill passed. Right. Do you look what was in that usual amount of pork, usual amount of stuff? One of the things that people don't like when they don't hear about it, is that uh, it's going to mandate a chip in your car that spies on you for, dr- for, for how much you've had a drink. So what's next? Automated federal tickets for speeding or changing lanes too often? Required pre-approval for interstate routes? Remote kill switch? Sorry to go on, Mark Lemon on you there, but if you're tired of people who want to control every part of your life and clamp down on your digital freedom, use ExpressVPN to protect your network from being monitored. See, your internet provider, you know, Verizon, Spectrum, whatever, they can keep logs of your internet activity. This includes stuff like the sites you visited, how much time you spent on that site, and what's the worst, the government can get them to cough up those records whenever they want. But when you use ExpressVPN, your internet activity is shielded. Their app works by routing 100% of your network data through their secure and encrypted servers, and that keeps your activity private. Unlike the kill switch the government probably wants to put in all our cars, ExpressVPN's kill switch actually protects you. If your VPN connection ever drops, network data is immediately stopped from entering or leaving your device to keep privacy from being, from being compromised. It is a kill switch that you control. All it takes is one easy tap of a button for ExpressVPN to secure all of your devices. So stop letting the government and everybody else spy on you. 
Take back your privacy and your freedom at expressvpn.com slash ricochet and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash ricochet. Expressvpn.com slash ricochet. And we thank ExpressVPN for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. Well, that was fun. Um, I wanted to ask a follow about Antifa. I think the problem there is it's still going on. Sometimes I want to say, look, you might not get the data that you want from people uh, who are, you know, spying on them. Just look at Project Veritas. They've got these guys blabbing all over the internet about what they want to do and the rest of it. But there were a lot of topics covered, and I hope everybody enjoyed getting to what we did. We didn't get to um, Twitter because I don't know if Bill Barr is on Twitter. I don't think that he is. But if he is, um, I wonder if you'd be applauding Elon Musk joining, buying 9.2% of the uh, social media dynamo. <laughs> what do you think is, is, is the result? People are not happy about this. They are, they are just freaking out. I was looking, um, Ellen Powell, who's a blue check, says, I hope the team at Twitter is figuring out how to limit Musk's influence. They've been making progress on harassment, and now they're a target. He wants to take them back to a free-for-all, and most users don't want that. Next response. This is why money should never be able to buy any kind of power in any kind of company. We are breaking a fundamental oh, law oh, of the universe every time we take this path. Wow. They're, fr- they're unhappy about it because it's going to be the return of people just saying anything they want to say. The bad old days. COVID, wow. COVID disinformation might be spread. And of course, we all know COVID disinformation yeah. like, like pornography when we see it. Um, I'm happy that he's doing this. I enjoy every time our own Tony Stark does something like this. I'm going to bore holes in the ground and put cars down there. I'm going to sell flamethrowers. I'm going to Mars. I'm going to give Ukraine a whole bunch of Starlink satellites. Far more fascinating character than any of these you know wet blanket nullities that we find in the squad and the rest of the uh, progressive movement these days. I agree with every word of that. I, I, I sort of, I, I try to dislike Elon Musk because I still, it still bothers me that Tesla exists pretty largely, even now, this does not go to the market cap, but this goes to their profit and loss statement, pretty largely on federal subsidies. And we're subsidized. I mean, I live in the middle of Silicon Valley. Every other car is, is a Tesla. And I know the people driving these cars. They don't need federal no. subsidies to be encouraged to buy electric no. vehicles. So this is a transfer from middle-class Americans to upper-middle-class Americans. By, okay, so I don't like that. On the other hand, as Elon Musk himself points out, the federal government bailed out GM. Ford itself benefits from this, that, and the other kind of subsidy. Okay. I try to dislike him, but the, I find the guy irresistible. His instincts, <laughs> he's fascinating. He's a showman. He's enjoying himself. Mm-hmm. And every instinct is to take his thumb and put it right in the eye of the technocrats, of the self-serious, of the progressive woke left. God bless him and his billions. That's what I think. Rob is going to take the more mature view. No, no. I mean, look, he's, he, he makes big bets and those big bets um, have so far paid off, right? I mean, he just has a different investment strategy uh, from everybody else. I mean, everybody else has, from a lot of people, from certainly from his colleagues, his friends, the, 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 their investment strategy is I'm smart. I know everything. I'm going to figure out what's going to happen. And I'm going to put my money down on what I know is going to happen. Um, that's pretty much what every investor thinks, right? Elon Musk says, I want to find out if we can go to, the Mar- go to Mars. 
I want to find out if I can build an electric car. I want to find out if I can make Twitter a fun place again. Um, and so I'm just, you, I'm just rooting for the guy who wants to find out. These are investments about discovery. Uh, I, I suspect, I suspect him all. I think, I think he's going to find um, uh, terraforming Mars to be easier <laughs> than moving the culture. Than moving the culture, <laughs> certainly at Twitter, right? But um, I'm eager for him to find out. He's a mercurial, interesting guy. He doesn't seem to be uh, grinding any particular axe. He seems like he's kind of fun, a good sense of humor. Anybody with a good sense of humor, I'm behind. Um, so I'm, I'm rooting for him. In an way, people, go on. Peter. No, I just note that the Blue Yeti, our mm -hmm. producer and friend, the Blue Yeti, has just sent me a text in a white fury. Mm -hmm. He just bought a Tesla. And he's saying to me in the text chat, I found out this week that I don't qualify or any of the subsidies, state or federal. So oh, there. I don't know. Maybe they've scaled back the subsidies. But if you want to learn more, wait for the Blue Yeti to put up a post on it. Well, when it comes to terraforming Mars, one of the things that irritates engineer types is when you say, if we can put a man on the moon, why can't we do X? And they always would say, well, that's because putting a man on the moon is a series of technical problems and objectives and solutions. You, you have to go from here to there. What do we know about the difficulties? of going? I mean, it's a fairly narrow set of uh, data that you have to work. Terraforming Mars, not quite so sure, but I'd like to see them try. That'd be great. On the other hand, though, um, if we can send a man to Mars, why can't we on the right figure out a consistent view on the word groomer? And we're going to get to that in just a second. But first, Rob has to tell you something about Ricochet and why you should join. Rob? Well, I mean, obviously, uh, one of the reasons why you want to join is because you get to listen to this. What's it happening? We've already sold one Yay. copy. Um, uh, but there are a couple things I want you to know. One is uh, to this afternoon, I'm doing an ask uh, a no dumb questions, 45 uh, minute conversation with Glenn Lowry. Uh, so if you join in the next 30 seconds, you can hear that. Uh, and if you don't well, join in the next 30 seconds, we're going to be doing these a lot. But just so you know, we have a Greatest Hits newsletter. So make sure to subscribe to the latest edition of the Greatest Hits, which is our free weekly newsletter. So you can get a sneak peek of the members-only content and Ricochet Community News. It's a good way for you to find out if this is something that you want to do. Um, you sign up today at um, ricochet.com slash greatest. Also, one of the perks of being a Ricochet member is that you can post to your heart's content. And another one is if we promote your post to the member feed, to the main feed, it's shared on our social media channels. And let's give you and your awesome writing some exposure among the great big Ricochet public, which is enormous. We have a, we got every, every podcast listener and every viewer gets to, gets to, uh, follows us on social media. So some of our favorite main feed posts from this past week was from member St. Augustine, the folly of massive debt, which was, uh, Really great. And, um, and uh, I mean, it, it, uh, as somebody who has complained and complained about the national debt, I was pleased that that's still an issue. Uh, so make sure to check out this main feed post and all the other cool content at ricochet.com. And if you are not a Ricochet member, you should not sit on this. What are you waiting for? Join today. You get the first 14 days free. Sign up at ricochet.com slash join. We would like to be members with you.
And you too can be a writer if that is what you are looking to do. I mean, a lot of people join Ricochet and say, I'll just work for a while and then I'll contribute. Uh, Jenna S., one of the members of Ricochet, the, is, has just been posting some fantastic stuff and that moves her up the chain. You know, that 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 dark money conservative media chain that we're all part of. <clears throat> no, it was talent. People looked at her and said, she's good. She knows what she's talking about. This is good to read. And now she's appearing in places like National Review and the, American, or the Center for the American Experiment newsletter. And the other day, she said something to Walter Kern, your buddy, Rob, and Walter responded to her. So here's, you know, this guy, this great writer in Montana, reaching out to Jenna here in Minneapolis. It's a cosmology that you may not be familiar with until you start to get to know what the ricochet world is all about. And if you're thinking that it's all nothing but just massive liberal squawking Twitter out there, no. Ricochet will tell you something different. Well, one of the arguments on Twitter and Ricochet and elsewhere and NR has been the term grooming. Some people don't like it because it undercuts the true meaning of the word. Some people don't like it because it's a broad brush and it really isn't fair when you talk about the don't say gay bill, which isn't any more than Trump told people to drink bleach or said fine people. Um, They're using the term because it's like racist and white supremacy, like the left does, to use a term to, sh- to, to instantly paint the other side as being on the other, a reprehensible moral member of the community. You know, you, that's all you have to say. You're a groomer. End of argument. And I see that. I mean, just as they've used terms to reduce complex ideas on the right down to simple, you know, blunt force instruments, I can see the satisfaction in doing that. But unfortunately, it seems over time to have the tendency of just making people tune out of the debate. You see that word just like you see libtard or, you know, rethuglican or something like that. And you just move, you just move along. I don't think it adds anything to the debate. I get why people are enthusiastic or interested in using the word. And I get the power politics involved in that, but I don't think at the end of the day, I said that phrase, I shouldn't have, that it, 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 it helps the discussion. Not because I'm offended or anything like that. I just don't think it's helpful. It may be correct, but it's not helpful to getting to the issues, which is what do we teach kids and when do we teach them that? Or am I just veering into Rob Squish territory here? <laughs> oh, well, oh, popular territory, I got to say. A lot, a, lot, a lot of Americans are in that territory. <laughs> uh I hadn't thought of the groomer thing in anything like that depth, but I didn't hear a word you said just now, James, with which I disagree. Well, then let's stop right now on that fine <laughs> high note, lest we spoil the perfection of this event anymore. I'd like to thank William Barr for coming along. We'd like to thank, of course, Boland Branch and ExpressVPN. Support them for supporting us, and your life will be immeasurably, immeasurably, <clears throat> I cannot speak, immeasurably better. Join Ricochet today as well. And if you would take a minute, Oh, do I have to say it? I do. Take a minute. Take 30 seconds. Take 15 little seconds. No time at all. It's a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. That's three seconds per star. I'll bet you can do it in five seconds, one second per star. And then the reviews help more people show up and join. And we keep going until we're past episode 600, 700, until we hit episode 1,000. All of us here in Walkers with little tennis balls at the, you know, at the, at the feet to help us <laughs> shuffle along as we go to our gruel at the 11 a.m. buffet. But that's a way. <laughs> it's been a fun, gentlemen. We'll see you next week, and uh, we'll see everybody in the comments at Ricochet 4.0. Next, next week. week.